Welcome to Meet the New Boss, a riveting podcast series exploring how business leaders make their way in the world and how music has influenced who they have become. Here are your hosts, Vince Catanzaro and Jeff Neiber. Okay, welcome to another episode of Meet the New Boss. This is Jeff Neiber, your co-host. With me always is... Vince Catanzaro. Vince Catanzaro. How are you doing today, Vince? It's the fall. Uh, season is upon us. Do you yes, feel it's like it's fall? Well, I do because I'm in upstate New York, and it was a beautiful, crisp end of summer day here today. Nice. Are you out there um, raking the leaves yet? No, I am. You know, we did. Uh, we, I went to a, uh, a concert last night. I saw nice. Ace Frehley and Alice Cooper with your son, uh, right? With my son and some friends, and and uh, and Ticketmaster sold us non-accessible tickets, yeah, um, and as accessible tickets, so they moved us right up onto the floor, really, you know, about, uh, about twenty rows back at that first little break. Wow. So that what did he think? He loved it. Yeah, it was great. Um, now, how, we, we, you we've seen been Ace busy before. I've seen it. Both of us have seen Ace before, and I've seen Alice before as well. But so it was great. Alice on the top of the game or Rusty coming out of COVID? Ace was Rusty. Alice was on top of the game. And his band was ama- amazing. He had. Yeah. Uh, Alice just, has always had the best road band. Yeah. I feel like. And I, you know, that's, you know, that's not my genre. I've seen Willie Nelson in two nights. Uh, Wednesday night, the whole Willie Nelson outlaw, it's almost like a traveling music festival. There's about 12 people on the bill. It's pretty exciting. That's cool. Well, listen, we got a guest, so let's no, introduce, that's right. let's talk. Let's let's introduce talk our guest, and then I'll tell you my Saturday night real quick. So uh, with us today, we have uh, Russell Chorus. Russell is a uh, cyber currency advocate. He is uh, the CEO of... of we seek international and uh, and the CE started up a company easy 365 uh, he's a blockchain expert a TEDx speaker and we're very lucky to have him with us welcome Russell thank you so much guys it's really nice to be here and um, I'm looking forward to this conversation all right so before we dig in I gotta give you my Saturday night so I'm at my friend's house right now that participated in this and he and his 16 year old son who's only had his driver's license for three weeks both participated in the eve of destruction road race which in they participated in a race where they have to tow an object and they race around the racetrack crashing into each other it was the sickest thing i've ever seen in my life nice <laughs> like a demolition derby Is they had a demolition is? derby they had an endora race where people take these cars and just put a mesh in for the windshield and they race around dirt track and they smash into each other it was it's the sickest thing they had a bus one that like people were racing school buses and the school mm. buses crashing into each other it's, it's just, no students it's, though <laughs> yeah, I hope, yeah. <laughs> just just my just my friend one of my friends had a 16 year old son participating in the race that just seems crazy. This is in upstate New York? Yeah, this is at Orange County Raceway. Orange County is where they film, um, uh, was that American Chopper or, or Orange okay. County Chopper, that show. Is huh. that near Orangeburg, Pearl River, all that? No, yeah, not too far from Pearl not River. Not too far. Yeah, yeah. They have Pearl River, known for their uh, St. Patrick's Day parade. That's right. That's right. We had that conversation. All right. Well, I want to get into our a uh, little bit more about our guests. Not that I don't love Ace Freely, Alice Cooper, and um, Demolition Derbies, but I want to elevate. I'm hope I'm 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 hoping right. I'm confident Russell's going to elevate our conversation into into you know no, domains we've never even attempted to try. And so, Russell, I I'd love to hear. Like I'm a I'm a layman, no idea really about NFT. All, all of that. I'd love for you to give us like a quick overview and dumb it way down for me and Vince. I'm sure our audience knows a lot about it, but Vince, I don't know if you do, but I don't. Okay, no problem. Um, so in, in, a, in a sense, you can think of it this way, that uh, cryptocurrencies have been around for about 11, 12 years now. 
there was a lot of uh, skepticism uh, through the 2017 bull run when Bitcoin went from $1,000 in January to $20,000 in December. Uh, but over the preceding four years, and especially now that it's in the 40s and, and, and even higher, uh, I, I think that its credibility has been established. And so NFTs are kind of the new thing that, that people are unsure of. But ultimately, NFTs derive their value from the same place that Bitcoin derives its value, which is the blockchain and the technology behind it and the immutability and transparency of it. And so, uh, and, and from a technical standpoint, NFTs really are uh, a type of cryptocurrency. The only difference is that Bitcoin, Ethereum, these are fungible tokens in the sense that uh, when you buy a Bitcoin, you don't care which one you get. They are technically all individually traceable, just like US dollars with serial numbers are, but ultimately they're all have the same value and, and they're interchangeable. So that's what a fungible token is. A non-fungible token and all NFTs that are called correctly called NFTs fall under this category are simply uh, tokens like Bitcoin and Ethereum, but you can think of it as if there was only a single Bitcoin and a single Ethereum and a single Litecoin and a single Ripple and every single cryptocurrency had a unique and identifiable characteristics that gave it its own value different from every other cryptocurrency out there. Uh, and, th and that's what NFTs are, the fact that they have art minted on them, that art has a scarcity that is established on the blockchain. Uh, if it's a collectible like an uh, NBA Top Shot, again, there's scarcity, there's an addition of 50. If you have a LeBron James number one, it has certain value. And, and because of the blockchain and again, the, the, the immutability and transparency of it, these, uh, these things are, uh, you know, uh, um, authentication is guaranteed. Uh, scarcity is guaranteed and ownership is guaranteed and every transaction is tra traceable and trackable and is established on the blockchain. So provenance in terms of art and all these other things are, is guaranteed as well. So that's really where, you know, it, it's, it's just uh, <laughs> taking cryptocurrencies one step further. So it's like just, to, just, just when you wrap your head around how Bitcoin gets value, now all of a sudden you have to accept uh, uh, NFTs, but fundamentally, uh, most NFTs are minted on the Ethereum blockchain. And again, just like most ICOs, uh, and to this day, most new tokens are issued on off of Ethereum. Most NFTs are issued off of Ethereum because it has the largest uh, network effect. And so uh, you get the largest potential audience. That is starting to get diluted uh, in the NFT side, just like elsewhere, but ultimately, uh, you know, NFTs are no different than, than ICOs, just uh, they're one of a kind. That's kind of how you can think mm. of it. And so the under, you know, this, I want to be even more basic, right? The underlying, um, you know, if, value of money started out to be um, because it was somewhat fungible, right? But there was precious metals involved and you, you could cut coins up and, 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 ha and have changed that way. And then this is, again, I'm going to sound idiot, like an idiot, but <laughs> the U.S. went off the gold standard. Right? You used to be able to just mm -hmm. exchange ten dollars for gold, ten dollars gold, yeah. or whatever. So I think Nixon, right, come, comes off the gold. Mm -hmm. Essentially, the underlying asset of money became the faith and full credit of the United States government that said, "Hey, we support this thing called a dollar." There's no gold really backing it up. It's just us, which always felt really scary to me because, you know. Lots of countries said that, and then their, their their cash went to zero, right? And the only reason it really made sense for the United States is because we could beat anybody in a war, is what it felt like. <laughs> so we're like, all right, this thing, this little piece of paper is worth a dollar, and if you don't like that, then we'll come invade your country and make it worth a dollar. So mm -hmm. that was like the deal. But now, so now it's, it just, let's just start with crypto. 10, 12 years ago, crypto comes out, What's the underlying asset or what's the underlying value of the very first, hey, here's a Bitcoin and I'm going to exchange it for goods and services. But how do, how do we, the first Bitcoin, how do we know how much it was worth? So the first transactions at, with Bitcoin, uh, I mean, it started off valueless, as you can imagine. The first people that literally mined it, Satoshi and, you know, his gang and uh, his or her gang, uh, 
there was no value. Its initial trade, there's that, uh, you know, the, the, the trade for pizza established its original value, 10,000, which was for $40, so a quarter of a penny each. And uh, basically it went from there. Uh, fundamentally, what gives Bitcoin value and the reason why I believe it's here to stay and, and it's, you know, its mass adoption moment is already in the rearview mirror is because scarcity and it's the it's the math it's the algorithm that launched it and it's the fully autonomous fully decentralized nature of the bitcoin blockchain and the fact that after 12 years it's never been hacked and it's you know it's it's impossible to shut down unless you want to unless the world governments all shut down the internet that's really you know that's effectively i hear this all the time oh they're going to ban bitcoin okay but okay how is it gonna, north korea right. maybe china maybe <laughs> but america canada I, you know i don't think so right. so does it drive uh, the governments crazy that they're out of the they're, they're they well, no longer have the monopoly of what is a, a valuable asset Absolutely. And like you said, you know, the, and the, the term fiat, fiat currency, all dollars that are printed by a central government that are based on nothing. The term fiat, it, it literally means an edict or a decree. So it's basically, you know, we this has value because we say it does. And OK, that's great for the most part. But, you know, not to the citizens of Cyprus or Venezuela or Zimbabwe. So right. we've seen it happen. Like governments break their promise. That's all it is, is a promise. You know, yep, so exactly. uh, the, that, the Bitcoin was created and Satoshi has talked about this in the, in the little bit that we know about this person. Uh, so, again, assuming even that it's just one individual, we don't even know that much. But um, uh, it was in response to the 2008 financial crisis and uh, that, you know, uh, Global equity markets were cut in half. I think $30 trillion was cut uh, in, in a very short period of time, within a year. And uh, it was all, you know, it was all due to games that were played on Wall Street that they all got bailouts and the average person is the one that suffered in the mortgage and the housing crisis, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, this, let's assume it's an individual, Satoshi, uh, wanted to create something where uh, people could have full and complete control of their wealth without having to rely on governments and banks and any institutions and any centralized organizations whatsoever. And that's really what the impetus was behind the creation of, of Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, he's seen that, uh, again, I'm using he, but uh, it's to, so far it's been, it's been proven, you know, incredibly prophetic, his uh, visions. So as far as, you know, the blockchain, so the Bitcoin blockchain, is that something that I could just go out and watch and monitor? Are there people watching the blockchain? Absolutely. And every single transaction, I mean, we know that that's how we know the, the contents of Satoshi's wallet. It holds almost a million Bitcoin worth, you know, $45 billion. It hasn't been moved since 2010. Uh, that's led to speculation that, that they may have died, but uh, again, the truth is we just don't know. But uh, every transaction, every wallet is registered on the blockchain uh, in a pseudonymous fashion. So that's the way Silk Road gets shut down. That's the way, you know, if you wanna, if you want to money launder, Bitcoin is not the way to do it. US dollars are much, much more anonymous than Bitcoin. Uh, you know, you think of it as an email address, you can set uh, you know, uh, Mr. Ed at hotmail.com and nobody knows who the real person behind that is. But if you were to commit crimes using that email address, you know, you could certainly, the real person behind it could be tracked down. And the same thing with Bitcoin addresses. So, uh, uh, those transactions ever again, and you can, you can go to, there's, uh, uh, just go Google uh, Bitcoin blockchain viewer. Uh, I forget the name. You know, there's uh, a number of them for Ethereum. It's etherscan.io, and uh, every everything is there. <laughs> it's wide open, visible, and that again, that's the beauty of it. Not only is it is it transparent, but it's immutable. Once a trans, once a record is written to the blockchain, it can never be altered. So there's even not even the possibility of fraud or you know even honest mistake or any sort of like. Human human intervention doesn't enter the picture. Once a transaction is written, it's you can you you can be absolutely certain that that data is is exactly what it was when it was entered. That's interesting. I um I had you know I, I think you know I'm going to need to go out and view it. I think that'll make it become more real to me. Like to see the the transactions. I think where people maybe struggle, Russell, is is taking these ideas, 
you know, at least a paper dollar, you're holding it, right? Like the cost of making a $10 bill and a $100 bill, I would imagine is the same for the federal government, right? The manufacturing of it, but at least it's in your hand and you can say, well, here's a $100 bill. I think the... Uh, the, the conversation of all the money that we have electronically, whether in the bank or now in moving into cryptocurrency, just doesn't seem real to people, right? And I think that's where people struggle. For sure, but I mean, at the same time, uh, you know, again, the, the Bitcoin algorithm guarantees that there will only ever exist 21 million Bitcoin. And, and that guaranteed scarcity, uh, it's, you know, the first time in, in in recorded history that I can think of where, where an asset that has had value has had a, a finite supply, you know, gold, diamonds, whatever you want to think of. There's always a little bit more. It's, we know that it's, it's scarce, but, but it, we, don't, we don't know where the limit is, assuming there even is one. Uh, with Bitcoin, that number is known, and every day you know exactly how many Bitcoin are issued via mining. And so that, again, that guaranteed scarcity, I mean, it's the simplest law of economics that if demand goes up in an asset and the, and the supply is fixed and finite, then there's only one way for the price to grow. And I think that's what you've seen over the last, especially since, let's say, 2016 to today, when Bitcoin was in the hundreds of dollars to today, where it's in the 40s and 50s thousands. Uh, that's that's the reason for that is that institutional buying has, uh, has keyed in. And when Tesla, when MicroStrategy, when these other publicly traded companies assign a percentage of their cash flow to Bitcoin, that never gets sold through the ups and downs. That's hodled, as they say, as we say, and it's not, uh, you know, it's never sold. It's put on thumb drives, on hard drives, and in, in stored in vaults, and it's off the market. And so, uh, you know, even in the 21 million, 4 million of that has been lost forever uh, because of forgotten passwords. So the point is, is that there is a built-in scarcity that, that as mass adoption grows and as uh, uses for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies grow, uh, then, you know, that's the price just continues to climb. And I do believe that $100,000 Bitcoin and $250,000 Bitcoin and even $1 million Bitcoin is inevitable. It's only a matter of time. It may take 10 years, it may take five years, it may take 20 years. I don't know, but uh, it, 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 it is going to happen. What about somebody, and maybe this is the, we take the conversation into NFT next, is replicating the benefits of Bitcoin with another product, right? Is that the next phase that you see? Like, why, why couldn't, you know, why, why, why must we say the supply, I get the supply of Bit, Bitcoin is finite, but not the supply of cryptocurrency, right? Correct. Uh, there are new cryptocurrencies issued daily uh, and uh, it's the same it's 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 you can think of it the same way as you know anybody can can launch another social media platform to compete with Facebook, but Facebook has value because of the network effect and the millions of people that are on it, and so anybody can launch a competitor to Bitcoin, and and you know quite a few have, and so far uh, you know it's still the king, and and I don't see that changing. I do you know I I hear oh it could be the MySpace and something else will come along and be Facebook, but. Uh, at this point, I think that the, you know, when you look at every metric, whether it's transactional volume, whether it's mining data, whether it's, you know, overall like size of the network, you know, the market cap, I mean, uh, number of transactions, like every metric, it's, it's number one by, by a lot. And uh, uh, I, I have faith that it's, it's too firmly entrenched at this point to ever be, uh, you know, superseded. So how'd you end up getting in, into that, Russell? I know you're an advocate, you know, almost an evangelist of it. You're, I, I saw your uh, your TEDx talk about uh, Bambi versus Godzilla, I think it's called. And and uh, so, so how how did in your career take us a little bit through your career arc and becoming a CEO of a international cryptocurrency company? Uh, well, that's been very interesting, but basically I got into crypto in around 2015 and um, I was mining Ethereum for a while. I was trading a little bit here and there. And uh, again, during the bull run of 2017, that's when Bitcoin really you know, came into its own for the first time in the public consciousness. And uh, it, it was quite a meteoric rise. Again, it was $1,000 in January, $20,000 by December. So over the course of that one calendar year, it did a 20X. And uh, 
it caught a lot of people's attention for obvious reasons. And during that time, I had, uh, you know, tons of calls, uh, whether it's longtime friends or people that, you know, I haven't, hadn't heard from in a long time, but over Facebook, they know that I was into crypto. And so they would reach out to me and say, listen, I really want to uh, get into crypto. I want to buy some Bitcoin. I, I've tried, I did some research. It's overwhelming. I can't figure it out. And having these conversations over and over and having to really spend a lot of time uh, you know, as a Sherpa, as I was, as I like to say, helping people, leading them into the promised land, uh, I came up with the idea of this industry needed uh, a company focused on the user experience and focused on, you know, the only way we were ever going to see mass adoption uh, was if it was easy for the average person to get on board. So I started a company called Easy 365. Uh, we started it uh, late to 2017 at the absolute height of the market and uh, had to endure, you know, two years of crypto winter and a lot of twists and turns along the way. Uh, but uh, we've, we've launched an exchange called Easy Exchange. Uh, we've, we have a gaming platform called Easy Win. We have a learning portal called Easy Academy. And the major focus for our business right now at the moment is Easy NFT, which is a division focused on, on the NFT. Uh, we did our first drop about a month ago called Renaissance 2.0. Uh, and uh, earlier this year, we were also acquired uh, by WeSig, which is a publicly traded company. I was named CEO of WeSig as well in that deal. And uh, through, uh, through essentially an RTO, we, have, uh, uh, we are now trading under the ticker symbol WCIG. Uh, so in a sense, you know, we, we, we issued a press release last week announcing this, uh, uh, the, the launch of Easy NFT. And in it, we said that we're the first company to be directly, the first publicly traded company to be directly tied into the momentum of the NFT market. And this is really fundamental because again, in 2017, uh, everybody was who, who heard about the, you know, what we would see on the news, the price of Bitcoin going up and up and up. The only way to participate was to own the underlying asset. Uh, there was no simple way for a casual investor uh, to, to, to gain exposure to the price of Bitcoin. Today, that's not the case. There's a lot of, you know, whether it's high blockchain, right blockchain, there's grayscale, there's in Canada, we have actual ETFs on Bitcoin and Ethereum. So there's lots of ways now, uh, there's publicly traded companies and lots of ways for a casual investor to be, to gain that exposure. But for NFTs, it's a different story. The only way, you know, you hear about people, you hear about Top Shot, you hear about some of these things in the news, crypto punks, the only way to to uh, gain exposure to that is to actually buy the NFTs and to know what you're buying and to to have a MetaMask and to have an Ethereum wallet or to, you know get on the, all these different blockchains. So that's where I, as a CEO, uh, being you know sort of a, a, an OG, if you will, from the crypto space and in the NFT space, um, it, it's a unique position to be the CEO of a publicly traded company to not be a recent convert, you know, as a result of some consultants to, to have been in the space from the beginning and, and now uh, leading a, a publicly traded company in, in, into NFTs. And so in your career, it started off, like you were a software engineer to sales engineer to, <laughs> to, uh, into, this, into this technology. And, and, uh, and when you answer that, give me a, a kind of an understanding of what does mining crypto even mean? Like, so I'm trying to envision it, you know, and I, I see someone on the computer trying to figure out where it is, but what, you know, what, is, what does that mean, mining? So mining is the process by which transactions are confirmed. Uh, and you know the fundamental nature of, of Bitcoin, as I mentioned in my TED talk, I make this analogy that uh, the reason, you know, when you send money to somebody, you have to use PayPal or you use uh, email money transfer or you use Western Union because you need a third party to validate so that you need some, you need an objective third party that both other parties can rely on to say, yes, this transaction has been confirmed. Uh, and with Bitcoin, you don't have that. With cryptocurrencies, with the blockchain, you can uh, interact directly peer to peer with a complete stranger halfway around the world. And you can send the money over the internet and you can have complete confidence in the validity of that transaction. You cannot say that you sent it if you didn't, and the other party cannot say that they didn't receive it if they did, because both of you can go onto the blockchain and see that the transaction's been confirmed, and there's no, there's no possible, it's a trustless transaction. There's no possibility of fraud, because again, they, it's transparent and it's immutable, that data. So uh, that is the, the complete difference. That's the reason why banks 
uh, and even central governments see crypto as such a threat because fundamentally banks are just intermediaries and the blockchain, uh, they're, they're financial intermediaries and the blockchain allows you to get rid of that. It allows you to transact and now with DeFi, decentralized finance, you have insurance, you have mortgages, you have credit cards, you have savings accounts, you have everything that a bank offers available on a peer-to-peer -peer basis through smart contracts where, again, there's there's no possibility of fraud. These are contracts where funds are locked up and they're released under certain conditions that are, that are you know, <laughs> done in an autonomous fashion. And it's, it's just an incredible world. And, um, you know, that's where... Uh, uh, I think that's where banks are. That's where you see most of the most of the uh, pushback is from that perspective. So NFT again. I'm so sorry, Jeff. I, I'll let you go next. The NFT focus is creating NFTs, marketing NFTs, putting them on the blockchain, like your business focus. You mentioned your focus is now on NFTs. You know, as a consumer. Um, or anyone listening to the podcast, what is it that you're facilitating doing? So, that, and that's a great question. So ultimately, you know, I came, if you think from my, I founded Easy 365 in, again, about almost four years ago now. And now, and I was this co-founder and CEO, I'm now the CEO of WeSig. And in that role, uh, my job is to bring value to shareholders and to investors in WeSig. And the way we're going to do that is through Easy 365. So uh, the NFT side, it, we've got a number of, uh, of ways of, of building investor value through NFTs. We're opening a, uh, an NFT marketplace. Uh, we're going to have an NFT incubator where we help existing artists who have you know, uh, reach in the real world come into the NFT space. Uh, we're doing part of our uh, cash balance is going to be kept in NFTs. So again, using my experience and expertise, my I've, I've acquired uh, an extensive personal collection of art, of collectibles. I have one of the top 0.1% uh, of all collections in NBA Top Shot in the world. And I've got a lot of land as well. So uh, I use that uh, to invest it in the company and so we use part of our cash balance to invest in nfts and then we also partner with artists and do these uh unique commissioned art drops uh the first of which we just did uh, a couple months back and we've just had our first sale of, of the first three pieces sold from that collection for a total of six ether so we're very happy about that and the idea there was uh we we acquired some uh five editions of Andy Warhol's Marilyn Monroe prints from the Sunday Bee Morning Collection. These are essentially authentic reprints. They're not the original factor editions. Uh, their value is about $500. But we uh, commissioned, I reached out to five of the artists that I had previously worked with uh, or had in my collection. And uh, they created one of one digital artworks that were uh, artistic interpretations of the Warhols and, uh, you know, essentially what Andy Warhol, what Marilyn Monroe meant to them. And then they created these unique pieces that were then sold uh, with the physical. So it was a physical and digital bridging the two worlds together. And every NFT also came with an infinite objects display, which is a really beautiful physical glass display that shows a video, can have a video input into it. And uh, you, you are able to physically display your NFTs so you don't have to just see them on your computer or on your phone. The idea behind it, so that it was called Renaissance 2.0 and the idea behind it was to bridge that gap between the physical art world and this new world of, of NFTs. So what are some of the artists, uh, you know, one of our themes of this show is kind of um, music related. So are there any music related artists that you've engaged with in your travels in this um, foreign land <laughs> well there are there there are quite a few uh artists a lot of musicians are getting into nfts uh kings of leon were the first group uh, uh earlier this year that they they released an album exclusively on nft as an nft i've been roaming around always looking down at all i see painted faces fill the places i can't you know that I can use somebody You know that I 
In various ways, you know, you see celebrities, you see athletes, some of it is purely cash grabs, some of it is, you know, genuinely innovative, and, and this is the way this type of technology evolves, and, you know, generally in fits and starts, but um, it's, uh, I mean, for me personally, uh, my single favorite musician of all time would probably be Peter Gabriel. Uh, I've seen him at least a dozen times over the years. Uh, my second favorite would be Trent Reznor. I've probably seen him a dozen times over the years. And, uh, you know, I was, I'm 50 years old, so it, it lined up perfectly for Woodstock 94. I was 23 years old and uh, seven of my friends and I uh, rented a minivan and we drove from Toronto to New York and spent three days there. And, and both Peter Gabriel and Nine Inch Nails had incredible performances during that festival. And, uh, you know, one of the highlights of my childhood, it was Woodstock 99 apparently was a disaster, but Woodstock 94, I think, had most of the uh, essence of the original, and uh, it was, it was uh, a lot of fun. That's cool. Now, um, did you like Genesis when they had Peter Gabriel? Or Absolutely. Did you like yeah, the old stuff was incredible. Supper's Ready on uh, the 26-minute song on, I think, Musical Box uh, from 1970. <laughs> it's some amazing music. I love the, the early Genesis with Peter Gabriel where it was by far the best. It's a very unique band in that I can't think of too many other bands where, like Van Halen's a classic example where they switched out lead singer, but here, lead singer leaves, Ah, get the drummer up there, right? He's fine. <laughs> and then they break up, and the bass player goes on. Is is it, mm -hmm. is it Mike? Mike the Mechanics? Yeah, they? yeah, Mike Rutherford. <laughs> Just crazy, right? I don't know. Yeah, it is amazing. Can't process how <laughs> talented they must have been to spawn three. And then, you know, of course, Phil Collins as a solo artist. As a solo, exactly, yeah. But so they, like yeah, the Beatles, all... really, if you think about all those... Um, different permutations yeah absolutely but while they were together like land like that on broadway that that double album was so good and just there's some that all that 1970 to about 74 75 is there's like four or five albums that on a road trip nothing better <laughs> I think about like so Peter Gabriel kind of post Genesis, you know, I, I'm in high school. I think, you know, it was in the early eighties when mm -hmm. Red, so, Red yeah. Rain was very popular and Yeah, Sledgehammer. Uh, yes, Sledgehammer. Yes. <laughs> that awesome video. <laughs> yeah. Claymation. Uh, yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> All right, why don't we take a quick break and we come back, we'll do a little, little round and maybe a little culture corner. Um, so we'll be back in just a little bit. Hi, my name is Ami Quiricone and I'm the author of The Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business, What Every Woman Needs to Know to Be a Courageous, Authentic and Unstoppable Entrepreneur. This is not a business book that tells you how to set up your legal structure or how to post on social media. Instead, I discovered during my 20 years of entrepreneurship successes and terrible defeats that I was self-sabotaging and holding myself back. That's when I found out that if we want long-lasting success in business and nothing else we've tried has been working, then it's time to grab a shovel and dig a little deeper into the reasons why. So if you're just starting out or have been in the entrepreneurship game for a few years and you want to do better, grab this book. It's available in paperback and audio. Because if you can be anything you want to be, why not be fearless? Okay, welcome back. We're here at Russell Chorus. We're talking uh, 
blockchain and cryptocurrency and NFTs. And I, I tell you, everywhere I go, I see it. I took my son to Dragon Con a couple of weeks ago, and lo and behold, they had an NFT booth up at Dragon Con. So, uh, all right, Russell. Well, listen, thank you so much for sharing with us uh, uh, about the organization and uh, WeSig International and the work that you're doing with artists with NFTs. Um, we do a little section that we call like a lightning round. It's like just to kind of get to know Russell a little bit better. So, you know, in post-production, Jeff adds some uh, some music to it and uh, we have a little bit of fun and uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions and just go with uh, the first answer that comes to your mind. Sounds good. All right, here we go. What celebrity do you most look like? <laughs> um, I'm going to say uh, Russell Crowe, just because it's the same first name. <laughs> He's pretty good looking. <laughs> right. What's your go-to cocktail? Uh, cocktail would be probably vodka and cranberry. If you could join one of these two bands, which would it be? Backstreet Boys or Metallica? <laughs> uh, Metallica. What was your favorite cartoon growing up? Uh, probably Tom and Jerry. What would your superpower be? Uh, I think flight would probably be the first thing that comes to mind. Okay, that leads into the next question. If you uh, if you had the opportunity to next month leave for Mars for a two-year mission, would you go? Absolutely not. <laughs> the uh, if you were an animal, what type of animal would you be? Uh, I'd probably be a dog. King Kong or Godzilla? <laughs> love these questions. Uh, I gotta go with the OG King Kong. Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd? Oh, that's a tough one. Gotta go with Zeppelin. What was the largest boat you've ever been on? A uh, couple of cruise ships. Doubt I'll ever be on another one, but <laughs> I don't think the record will ever be broken. <laughs> All right, excellent. How do you, Jeff, how do you do? He did great. He got nine out of ten. That's <laughs> Woo. So there, there must be a terrible cruise ship story associated. You know. <laughs> well, I just think in a post-COVID world, it just you know even with vaccinated, I, I don't know. It's just it, it's going to be a long time before I feel comfortable on a cruise ship. And they, they're you know in the best of times, uh, you know, they, there's there's so outbreaks are so common that uh, yeah, I think uh, it's <laughs> like a floating petri dish. Exactly. Oh my God. This is disgusting. <laughs> I, had a, I have a friend whose daughter was on that ship that was off the coast of East Asia that they wouldn't bring to port. She was a pianist. Like, she worked oh, for the cruise line. And she yeah. was on that ship that, you know, couldn't... No one would let them land. And they were yeah. having the uh, COVID and outbreak. the toilet all filled up, right? Oh, God. You imagine. <laughs> what a nightmare. Yeah. That's another reason, yeah. <laughs> Personal yacht is, is as far as I think I'm going to go. <laughs> there you go. That sounds much better. Yeah. Cool. Right, well, Jeff. let's move on to uh, a cultural corner, and let's just see um, see where this takes us. I think I read this. I maybe heard it on a podcast. I don't think we talked about it. It's 2D versus 3D communication. And what this guy was explaining was 2D is what maybe we would call, um, you know, like email and, or messages you know, it, it just is a kind of a sin thing, piece of information. And then 3D is much more interactive. And, you know, like in a meeting and you got a whiteboard up or you're collaborating online or whatever. And this person was saying most of the frustration around communication within an organization is where you use a, a mechanism or medium mismatch between 2D and 3D. So for instance, we've all probably been there. When you're in a meeting, you're 20 minutes deep into a 30 minute meeting and you realize, you know, all of this could have just been sent in a well-worded email, right? And so there's a frustration there of, we're in this 3D setting, meaning we're all geared up for uh, kind of inter-communication and back and forth collaboration, but really, we're just sitting here receiving information. And so that's 
That's bad. Equally bad, we've all probably done this too, we're on like an email chain that's 15 variations back and forth and people replying on and and there and that's an example of trying to have 3D communication, collaboration back and forth in a 2D medium email. And so, you know, the advice is understand the 2D versus 3D nature of what you're trying to communicate and then try to um, align that up with the medium. So have 2D conversations in email, 3D conversations in meetings. So that's my cultural core. What do you guys think of that? Do you have any examples of uh, that's kind of stuff gone awry or where it makes well, sense? Or I, well, I, well, I do. My, my question would be, is there uh, like a common set of questions that the organizer, facilitator, communicator could self-ask to appropriately align the the communication style like so you know i asked myself this question this question gives me the answer if this needs to be a 2d or 3d conversation maybe something to think about um, i shared this story i think in the past but when we used to work together jeff i participated in a 8 a.m daily meeting that was you know like 45 minutes to an hour long that was completely worthless and there was like 30 people on the call and uh, I mean you, the company could have literally just taken, taken $10,000 and set it on fire in the front lawn and it would have been the same exact activity that this that this meeting was and uh, so you know so that was a, a poorly designed people weren't paying attention to meeting I'd see that as the negative um, but I'd really be curious right because I definitely have felt this frustration right where you start getting emails so I'm the one who's like I'm just going to pick up the phone and call right let me get this over with quick but the uh, you know it'd be good if there was a qualifier that's my initial right. thought for me it's I'll give you my two cents and then I want to hear Russell's too for me it's can this be sent in an email <laughs> the answer is yes. Cancel the meeting, send it. And then I, my other one, the tip would be, once it's once an email chain has gone back and forth and then back again like three times, don't send another email. Set up a meeting or like you do, put, pick up the phone and call. So three three iterations, then you got to be out out of business. That's my two cents. Yeah, Russell, I think. Yeah, yeah. What do you What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think a lot of that also comes down to just people uh, going too too granular in terms of attention to detail, and and the, you know it's obviously very important. The devil's in the details, but uh, there's there's no need to collaborate back and forth. Like people, you can you can make decisions about the little aspects of grammar or this word or this word, like things of that. I see a lot of, and you're right. Like this is the problem: is uh, on the one extreme. You've got these reply all email chains that drive everyone crazy. And then on the other hand, uh, you go into a meeting and then people are like, oh, you're wasting my time sending an email. Well, you can't, can't win either can't way. Win. So, you can't uh, win. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So um, it, it's, it's, it's a constant, uh, you know, juggling act. And if you can, uh, for sure, you know, face-to-face -face meetings, whether it's Zoom or, or now in an office, if you can make it. Uh, there, there is certain value to that, but uh, there's got to be, it, it's such a fine line. I mean, we're all trying to walk it, <laughs> most of us unsuccessfully, I think so. I think I'd probably shade more towards email and then have, it should be real, because it's very expensive for everybody to be dedicated to, you know, a time and space. And so I would want to make sure those are like uh, the really the things that drive my business, right? Get those things out of email and into, into you know, personal conversations. You know, this is, I, the, what I see it being abused a lot is in like a volunteer setting. It's like, I, I work with some organizations and there's people, you know, who are working full time and then there's a bunch of volunteers. And so the people working there are really into it and they really, 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 really want to talk about all the awesome things, you know, we're going to do today or this weekend or next week or whatever. And I often, I, and so I'm like one of the volunteers, I go dutifully go and, and like, I'm just sitting there going, Oh my gosh, 
all of this should just be in an email. And then, and they almost, and I, maybe this is another tip. I can hear them presenting the work, the, the information, and, and they'll stop themselves and go, this will all be in the email. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well then send the friggin' email. Yeah. Let, us, let us go have coffee and donuts somewhere. Yeah. So uh, that's my tip of the week. Yeah, or half the time, like in those reply alls, you see a question asked in a reply all email and you know, my first thought is it doesn't matter. Just either way, it doesn't matter. Just make the <laughs> decision right. and don't yeah, send the I'm, email. I'm fine. I'm committed. <laughs> I'm coming either way. That's great. All right. So before we take off, uh, let's go around. Top uh, Peter Gabriel song. <laughs> uh, my number one would be Rhythm of the Heat. Uh, that's just such a tribal song, the incredible drumming in it and... Uh, I, I actually, I, with my kids, I took them, they were all, my, my boys are 20 and 17, and I started taking them to concerts at a pretty young age. And they probably, uh, especially the older one, has probably seen Peter Gabriel maybe half a dozen times himself. And the last time the three of us went, which was a few years ago when he was in Toronto, uh, it was the first time he ever played that. Uh, of all the times that I had seen him previously, I'd never seen him play that song live, and that was the first mm. time. So it was, it was great. <laughs> cool. How about you, Jeff? Uh, what's the one I'm, I'm not a huge, huge Peter Gabriel fan. So I'm going to go either Salisbury Hill. Is that, is that That's a great one? Yeah. Salisbury Hill. Excellent and, choice. And then the yeah. other one where he's in say anything and they're holding up the boom box and it's. Oh, uh, in your eyes. In your eyes. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's a man, great that's one, a tearjerker yeah. song. I think I like Salisbury Hill better. Yeah. I saw yeah. him get inducted to the rock and roll hall of fame and, um, it was the guy from uh, Coldplay, I think, did it, which I thought was interesting. And uh, he, he, his speech was very interesting because he interwove like a storyline about Peter Gabriel using Peter Gabriel lyrics. And I, and, and I remember that, uh, if anybody wants to go YouTube that, that's really awesome. How about you, Vince? Well, you know, I don't know the the Peter Gabriel catalog very well, so I'd have to go with one of the popular ones, and probably maybe like Shock the Monkey, you know. Uh, yeah, I always I thought that was a that, pretty yeah. cool, pretty cool <laughs> tune. Right, also, a great video. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting video too. It was pretty edgy. Yes. I feel like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think that's it, Russell. Thanks so much for being a guest. I, um, I, uh, if if people wanted to reach out to you, what would be the best way to find Russell? Uh, the best way would be through. You can just search uh, WCIG as the ticker symbol for WeSig International, uh, and uh, my contact information is there under the company profile. That's the simplest way uh, to to reach me. And if, if anybody wants to talk NFTs, uh, I have a strong passion for it. I love to do it. So anytime. <laughs> Wonderful. Awesome. Thanks so much, yeah. Russell. This Thanks, was guys. very, this was, uh, very uh, informative for me, at least. And I know, um, our, I know our, our guests, our um, fans will get a lot out of it. So I really appreciate it. It was great. Okay. I'm happy to hear that. It was a lot of fun. Vince, Jeff, thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Cool. Take All care. Right, thanks so much. See you guys next time. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Meet the New Bus with Vince Catanzaro and Jeff Niebuhr. Available on Apple Podcasts and other streaming platforms. Please like and subscribe. Meet the New Bus is sponsored by Rene Vincent Executive Placement LLC. Contact Jeff at jeff.niebuhr at iCloud.com or find him on LinkedIn at Jeff Niebuhr. Contact Vince at vincent at renevincent.win or find him on LinkedIn at Vincent Catanzaro. Bumper music provided by The Who and Budafi. Additional engineering provided by Just-In-Time Recordings. All material 100% controlled by Vincent Catanzaro and Jeff Niebuhr. Unauthorized reproduction is prohibited by law. Meet the new bus. Drawn together by their mutual love of music, Jeff and Diane formed My Forever DJ during the 2020 COVID pandemic and went on a musical road trip. Traveling in the footsteps of Hank Williams Sr., Elvis, Bob Dylan, the band, the Rolling Stones, and Robert Johnson, 
they loaded up a mobile recording studio and, armed with Clorox wipes and a handful of masks, crisscrossed the South recording some of their favorite songs on location, on the side of roads, in honky-tonk parking lots, a hotel in New Orleans, in a shack at the crossroads, and anywhere they could find. The missing virtuoso in the recording. Really, that is the places. That is the route and the ride and the places. To me, that was really a strong pull uh, because I've had some history in New Orleans. I've had a little history in most of the cities we went to. The act of being in these places and spaces and was the missing virtuoso. And I think some people who listen to it get that because I would describe the finished product as jaunty in the sense that it is a little off. Uh, but hopefully when you listen to it, uh, you feel that sort of the vibe that we were going for. The results of this 1200 mile journey is their debut album, Southern Hotspots. Mark Drury of the Indie Shark says, my Forever DJ puts their road trip spin on classic tracks and by the end of the album, they feel wholly unique when put through such a different point of view. My Forever DJ is happy to take you along for the ride. Just be sure to bring some gas money. Somehow the dirt, you know, from Memphis to New Orleans, you know, maybe to Nashville or to Atlanta, man, all good things, <laughs> music come from here and it's just amazing and I, I think that's kind of the spirit of the project and I think that's the same reason why Mick and you know Keith came here in 69s to get a piece of that dirt and rub it in their hands and you know you see you see U2 did it what in 89 20 years later with Rat on Hum it's the same kind of thing um, and and you know what we're out there driving around and seeing you know mixing with the people and Stopping at the liquor store and the Walmart and the gas station, wearing our masks and the Clorox, and we, you know, it was just an all part and part and parcel of that whole vibe to get to that, you know, to get to that exact moment. So that was great. Check them out on Facebook or myforeverdj.com. Hi, this is Diane. This is Jeff. And we'd love for you to check out our album. Southern Hotspots by My Forever DJ. And we're here where it all began last July on Lake, beautiful Lake Martin. Thank you guys. <laughs>